First Samuel chapter twenty eight. We actually read the first two verses of chapter twenty eight the last time we were here. Um, remember David has been in Philistine territory, according to chapter twenty seven, for about sixteen now or more months, and he's been hiding from Saul. It's been a successful hiding from Saul because Saul feared going into Geth or any of the other Philistine territory to chase after David. So it was, in a sense, a safe place for him to be. But it was also a relatively dangerous place for him to be uh, because he was actually having to prove to the king Achish his loyalty to that king by telling the king that he had been uh, raiding Jewish towns, villages, and uh, and bringing the spoils to Achish to make proof of that. But he actually wasn't raiding Jewish villages. He was raiding the villages of those tribes that were friendly to the Philistines. And if Achish had ever found out the truth, that would have been the end of David's story. So God was even in this protecting David from harm. It probably, I don't believe, and most commentaries, in fact, I, I can't find a single commentary that says otherwise. Everybody that has studied this portion of scripture, that has written commentaries about it, have indicated that this was a terrible mistake that David was making because he had to go eventually against his own people with the armies of the Philistines. And that would have been a very, very precarious and dangerous place for David to find himself in. In fact, chapter 29 is going to be discussing that very detail. But before we get there, chapter 28 turns its attention from David to Saul. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in verse 3 of chapter 28, 1 Samuel tonight. Verse 3 says this, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Now, that's one of the good things that Saul did do. He put out from the land all the mediums and the spiritists, the witches, all were not to be allowed in the land of Israel. That was a, made, a, a law made by Moses many, many years before that. And they should never have been allowed. In fact, God said that the... Uh, People who would participate in such things were to be put to death. And Saul had done that which apparently Samuel had instructed him with regard to the putting away of all of these spiritists and uh, the diviners and the uh, witches and the uh, other people who would take advantage of such evil things as making contact with the dead or with the spirits in the spirit realm. And then it says in verse 4, then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together and they encamped at Gilboa. It's interesting that this is in the area of the place known as the Jezreel Valley, the place where Armageddon will take place, north of Jerusalem or northwest of Jerusalem uh, by several miles, and it's in the territory of the northern ten tribes of Israel, that will ultimately occupy that territory. But these armies are now gathering together once again to face off with each other in this very large valley 
of Jezreel. And when Saul saw the army, verse 5, of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. They were outnumbered. They had better equipped militarily forces. They had iron that Israel had very little of, and they were formidable. They had chariots, and in the plains, remember, the chariot would be like today's tank against the infantry. They were in trouble, and he knew it. And so it says in verse 6, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. So God had already stopped communicating with Saul. After Samuel was gone, Saul found himself very much alone as far as God was concerned. And he tried to contact the Lord, but the Lord wouldn't answer. Now elsewhere in Second Samuel, we'll find that one of the things that is said there is that Saul did in fact receive communication from the Lord from time to time. However, now God has given him over to his reprobate mind, according to Romans chapter 1. This is exactly what's happening to Saul. He is no longer with God, in favor with God, and he is actually now considered by God to be his enemy. Proverbs 1 is a good proverb to read with regard to those who are God's enemies, those who choose to disregard the commands of the Lord. And we can see as we move forward that this is exactly the state of Saul, the first king of Israel. And he's troubled because God is not answering him. So in verse 7, it tells us what Saul does next. It says there in verse 7, Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Well, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So they knew of at least one woman not too far away from where they were who was indeed a medium. So although Saul had instructed all of the people everywhere to dispose of all the witches, this one managed to survive and remain in the territory not too far away from where Saul now was. Not just a coincidence, I believe, but I believe also that God is still in this situation as he's now going to reveal to us the destiny that Saul has before him. Well, so verse 8 says, So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went, and two men with him. He didn't want this person that he's going to be visiting to know that he's the king of Israel. So he put on a disguise. Well, remember, he's the tallest man of all the men around him. He stood out among all the people in Israel. Kind of hard to disguise that. But he did disguise himself in common clothes instead of the clothes of the king so that she wouldn't know that he was the Saul, after all. She knew that if it was Saul, and he had already proclaimed that all witches are to be taken alive or actually murdered, then she would have not been very happy to see Saul. But he disguised himself so that she wouldn't think wrongly about him. So he went to her by night. And the latter part of verse 8 says, And he said, Please conduct a seance for me, and bring up from me the one I shall name to you. And then the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, so she doesn't recognize that this is Saul. 
You know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her, By the Lord. Isn't that interesting? He is using the name of the Lord to conduct business with a woman who was doing something that was absolutely opposed to God's will in this place of Israel, in the territory of God's people. He's swearing to her by God to do something that's an abomination to God. Again, verse 10 says, And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, verse 12, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. So this section that we've just read, verses 11 through verse 14, are very strange indeed. And there's a great deal of uh, differences, again, of opinion as to how to understand these events. Some believe that this was a demonic spirit. Others believe that it was actually Samuel. I lean toward the second of those two options, and I'll try to find a way to explain that to you as we go back through these verses. First of all, in verse 11, she asks Saul, who do you want me to bring up? And Saul tells her, bring Samuel up for me. Now, she is a medium. She works with spirits, and these are not godly spirits that she works with. She's used to what we would refer to as a familiar spirit, one that she contacts in the business of being a medium that she has. She is actually able to communicate with somebody from the spiritual realm, and she uses that connection to profit from being able to inquire of that spirit about the individual who is seeking her help or her guidance. So she's a very, very familiar person with regard to the spirit realm. But now she is asking Saul, who do you want me to call up? And Saul says, call up Samuel. Now she's going to begin this seance with the assumption that she's going to be contacting that familiar spirit that she already knows how to communicate with. I believe that to be the case because verse 12 tells us that she was immediately upon the beginning of that seance surprised beyond measure and she cried out with a loud voice and she spoke to Saul saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. She knew something was different. She knew something was absolutely unexpected as far as she was concerned. Instead of the familiar spirit, she actually saw a different being approaching and it scared her. It, it frightened her and she cried out with a loud voice. That wouldn't have happened if a familiar spirit had taken on the role of Samuel as what perhaps she would have normally expected. That isn't apparently 
what happened. In fact, it tells us in verse 13, when Saul says, don't be afraid, what did you see? She tells him, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. And it's interesting, the Hebrew word here for a spirit is the word Elohim, which is really normally translated God when it's referring to our God. It's also used in a plural sense, talking about the gods, the gods of the heathen or the Gentiles, Elohim of the Gentiles. Elohim is a plural name for the God, but we use that same plural form to describe our God because that's just how he is introduced to us in that plural form. So it's kind of confusing what is meant here. Again, my version says she saw a spirit in a singular form, or she might have seen spirits, or she might have seen many gods of the spirit realm, or idols, or demons. No idea exactly how best to translate that, but what she saw, again, was totally unexpected. And it says that he was ascending out of the earth. Now, we know that can't be our God, because God is in heaven. And the spirit realm is all around us. We can't deny that, but he's coming out of the earth. That's indicative of the fact that this is a spirit, a being that's coming out of the place of the dead. Whenever we see a reference to spiritual realm in the earth or under the earth, it is a reference to the place in Hebrew called Sheol. And Sheol is the resting place of all of the people who have gone after this life into the next. Now, there's a Greek word that we use in the New Testament for the same spiritual realm. And that Greek word is Hades. And you may remember that Hades is referred to in the New Testament quite often. It's the same basic term, although Sheol is a much wider term in its usage than Hades. Sheol can also just simply mean the grave. But in this case, Sheol is actually the place of the departed, that dwelling place of all of the spirits, all of the souls who have gone on before us, is the same as, in this case, Hades. This is from whence this spirit has come. And I'm going to be talking about that in a little bit more detail with regard to the uh, spiritual realm and this place called Sheol or Hades. But before I do that, let's continue again to look back at what was said in verse 14, where now Saul is saying to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is covered with a mantle. Now that mantle reference is a reference to that which the prophets wore. So it's obvious to Saul, this old man with a mantle must be indeed Samuel. And Saul doesn't see this particular spiritual representation that is before this medium, but she sees him, obviously, because she's able to describe him. He's an old man, and he's wearing a mantle. Now, <laughs> I have to say, there are some theologians, some pastors, who have argued, you know, when we die, 
I don't believe they would say that we're going to be in the same form in terms of our age as we are when we die. In other words, like for instance, Chuck Smith or Joe Foch, both of them believed that when we die and, and we're in glory, our bodies aren't going to be like our aged bodies, but rather they'll be young bodies, like 25 or 30-year-old bodies. I take a little bit of an issue with that for only one reason. There's no biblical proof of that, for one. And the other is, what are they going to do with the book of Revelation when it says the four and twenty elders stood before the throne? Elders is a name in the, both the Hebrew and in the Greek language for old man. So there are old men in heaven, and I'm afraid that I don't agree with Chuck or with Joe on that matter. But the woman says, he who has appeared before her looks in appearance as an old man with a mantle. And Saul knew immediately it was Samuel. Again, he doesn't see him, but he knows that it must be so. And when he knew that Samuel was appearing before this medium, then again, the last part of verse 14, he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now, verse 15, we see the word of God specifically stating Samuel speaking. It says, verse 15, now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me, and does not answer me any more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may reveal to me what I should do. Samuel asked Saul, why did you bring me up? He's been in the center of the earth, in Sheol, and he's been brought up. Now I believe this is God allowing this event to take place. Again, the medium was not in control. She's not the one who brought Samuel up. I believe it was God that allowed it to be so. Now, that begs the question, is that possible? And I can only say, with God, all things are possible. Now, if you turn to the New Testament in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, we see Jesus telling us of an incident that occurred and Jesus records for us in Luke's, Luke's gospel of a man named Lazarus and a rich man that he was a servant of. And it tells us in that passage in Luke that the rich man died and he went into Hades in torment. And then Lazarus also died and he went into Abraham's bosom. But that's also in Hades, in the center of the earth. And it is described in that passage that Jesus relates to us that that place is separated between the two types of individuals that are in existence in that place called Hades. There is a portion of that place called torments, and it's where those who were rejectors of God have descended, and they are in terrible, terrible torment even now today. They who have rejected Christ, who have rejected God throughout the ages, are still in Hades, in torment, waiting for the final judgment. But they're not removed yet from that place. Luke tells us there's a chasm between that place 
and the place known as Abraham's bosom, a place of rest, a place of comfort. And Lazarus is found, according to Jesus, in that place of Abraham's bosom. And when the rich man cries out to Abraham to ask him to send Lazarus to bring some water to quench the thirst, Abraham's answer is, you can't come over here and we can't go over there. There's a chasm between us. And so there was a separation, two uh, chambers, if you will, two places of residence, one for the evil men who rejected God, one for the saved men and women, I should say, who were believers in God throughout the ages. When Christ died, we're told that Jesus descended into the center of the earth. And he spoke to the spirits in Hades. Now, there's some confusion about exactly what took place there, but Paul tells us that he led captivity captive when he ascended. When he was raised from the dead, the Bible, I believe, teaches that he took all of those who were in Abraham's bosom, followers of God, by faith, from Abraham and before, all the way back to Adam and up to the time of Christ dying on the cross, all of those believers were taken with him at the resurrection and brought into heaven. The remainder of the dead are still in Hades, in that place of torment. But the Abraham's bosom portion of Hades has been vacated. That's what I believe the New Testament tells us, and that's what... I think we can be assured of that when we die, we were, are not destined to go into Hades at all, but we will go directly to be with the Lord in heaven. That's why Paul tells us to live as Christ, to die as gain. And he tells us that we will ever be with the Lord. We are going to be with him when we die. And that's a great promise to all believers. And yes, there's coming a day when he is going to raise the bodies of all of the righteous and their bodies will be reunited with their souls in a great resurrection of the dead who are Christ's own and we who are alive and caught up uh, and alive and still remaining on the earth at that time, if we are still alive, will be caught up together with them and we will also be given glorified bodies. We're not going to Hades, whether we die before the rapture or we're taken in the rapture, will be ascending into glory. Hades, again, is still inhabited by the ungodly. And it's not until after the millennial reign of Christ when Hades will give up the dead that is in it. And death and the sea and all of those who have died and rejected Christ and not lived for God will be raised up at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus. And it's there at the judgment seat, the white, great, great white throne judgment, where they will be judged to show them that they are not worthy to enter into the Lord's presence. And they for all eternity will be condemned to eternal damnation, outer darkness, much, much worse than what they are experiencing in Hades. They will experience 
a total separation from God forever and ever, and the torment will continue forever and ever. There is no such thing for the unsaved as annihilation. They are not annihilated. They are eternally damned, eternally punished. That's the destination. Now, Satan is going to be with them also, but he's on the earth today, and, and he's not in hell. He's not in Hades. He's presently active, trying to get as many people to, to go in that direction as he can possibly take, because he knows that if they ever turn to God, he's lost them. And he wants as many as he can get with him. So he's still actively involved in trying to convince people to go on his side instead of on God's side. Saul had that same opportunity. He had a choice. He could have made a better choice, a right choice, and he could have had a different set of circumstances, a different consequence to his end. But it tells us very plainly, Samuel's answer is clear. In verse 16 it says, Then Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? What he's saying to Saul is, Saul, you have become an enemy of God. And that pretty much to me expresses a certain amount of finality to his destiny. I believe that Saul is among those who are still in Hades. We don't have any real proof of that. It may very well be that Saul did indeed at the last moment repent. We won't know about him or anybody else with regard to that decision. As long as we have breath, I suppose it is possible that he did or could have repented. But Samuel's words are very, very specific and very clear. Saul, you have rejected your God. You departed from him, and he departed from you. Well, verse 17 says, And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. So Samuel is telling Saul, Saul, you have yourself to blame for the consequences that you're having to deal with because you did not obey the Lord. Remember when God judged Saul for his not being willing to destroy all of the Amalekites, God spoke through Samuel back then in one of those previous chapters that we've read that obedience is better than sacrifice and rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. He's going to a witch, a medium, and that's rebellion. And that's and just another sin added on to the many sins that Saul has made against God. But the one God, or one rather sin, that God is condemning Saul for here is his unwillingness to obey the command of the Lord for not executing his fierce wrath upon the Amalekites. Well, verse 13. 19 again says, Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. 
So again, here we are hearing the words of Samuel spoken to Saul. And take note of what Samuel is saying. Tomorrow, you and your sons. That will include Jonathan. Jonathan must die. Saul must die. And he's one of the very few people in all of Scripture that is given an actual date of that event. Tomorrow you will die. There's one place in the New Testament, Jesus is speaking of a parable though. In that particular parable that Jesus speaks, he speaks of a rich man who has a great harvest. And he says, what am I going to do with all of this great harvest that I've got? And he thinks about it and he says, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just build bigger barns and I'll store all that grain for my use for a later date. And then God speaks to that man and says, thou fool, your soul is required of you this night. That's the only other place that I can think of where a particular individual is given a particular time of departure. Saul is told by Samuel in no uncertain terms, tomorrow you are going to die. And he says, you will be with me. And again, that throws a lot of people off with regard to who is he talking to and where is this person that is talking to Saul coming from? Well, again, he's coming from the earth. He's a spirit being. So it must be that he's come from Hades. And again, Hades has two compartments. So Samuel isn't saying necessarily that Saul will be with him in Abraham's bosom. Samuel is just saying that tomorrow you will be with me in Hades. And his ultimate destiny is left up to God and God alone, as it is with all of us. Well, verse 20 continues the story, and it says, Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day and all night. I should think that very much so would be the case for anyone who was given such words as was given to this man Saul. Well, verse 21 says, And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your, Hayden, your man, maidservant has obeyed your voice and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of, of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. So she's trying to be nice to Saul. I think she's probably thinking if I'm nice to him, he's not going to kill me. He probably doesn't have the strength to even do any of that anyway. But he's not willing to eat. He's so troubled. He's so disturbed by what he's just gone through. He refuses. And verse 23 tells us, But he refused and said, I will not eat. So his servants, together with the woman, urged him. And finally he heeded their voice. Then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And then they arose and went away that night. So now Saul knows his destiny. He's got to face this Philistine army knowing that he's going to die at their hands. He also knows that his sons are going to die with him. His dynasty is coming to an end tomorrow. He can't run. He can't hide. 
It's a certainty. This is his life's end. I don't know if he slept all night. Probably didn't. But at least he finally did decide to eat something. His last meal. I'm not really sure if this has anything to do with it, but oftentimes the people who are in our present day are sentenced to death, are given one last meal. Maybe it's from this one act of mercy on Saul by the medium. I don't know for sure if there's a connection, but it's worth a possibility, possibility at least thinking of that. Well, chapter 29, we'll read a bit of that tonight. Chapter 29 continues the story now back to Daniel, uh, rather David. Remember, David is in Philistine territory. David has been taken under Achish's uh, hand, and he's treating David as a very personal bodyguard to Achish because of all the things that he thinks David has done on his behalf. And so we find now the Philistines, as they're gathering together for this battle, that we find David in the middle of a situation. Verse 1 of chapter 29 says, Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by the fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. So David, being Achish's bodyguard, was at the very end of this Philistine army, in line to be reviewed by all of the lords of the Philistines as they're preparing for their battle. Verse 3 tells us, Then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to his princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. So Achish is defending the reason that he is letting David be here is because, hey guys, David's been on our side for several months. He's been helping me in all the raids that we have been doing in Israel. He's been faithful. He's a good man, no longer serving his king in Israel, but serving me. And I respect him. I have a great deal of respect for this young man. He's a great warrior, and he's on our side. Well, he couldn't convince the other Philistine lords. Verse 4 tells us, But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you appointed for him, and do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? So their argument is really quite valid. How do you know, Achish, that David and his 600 men aren't going to turn, us, turn on us in the heat of the battle and kill as many of us as he can to vindicate himself in Saul's eyes. Well, that's a real good possibility. Achish perhaps hadn't really thought of that. And they go on to say in verse 5, Is this not David of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? They remembered the song that the Israelite women had sung many, many months before, or years before, after Saul and David had been going after each other for so long, and after David had killed Goliath, 
Now, these women had been singing this song, and it was well known to the Philistines, and they were actually very much aware of David's prowess all the time during his having been running from Saul. And so they're saying, this is the guy that they sang about. Don't you remember that, Achish? And verse 6 says, Then Achish called David and condescended. He said to David, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and your going out and your coming in with me in the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not favor you. The Lord's being the princes of the Philistines. Therefore, verse 7 says, Return now and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So Achish is having to agree very reluctantly to the Philistine lords, okay, I'll send him back to Ziklag, where we have given him that city. It's a walled city in the territory of Judah, which is actually in the Philistine control, but he had given that city to David, you recall, and he's going to send David back to Ziklag with the 600 men. And But David, before he goes, says this. Now, this is very, very amazing and dangerous for David, but yet I believe that David was trusting in God because he's seen God's hand in a final way of being able to escape the situation that he found himself in. If these things hadn't happened, if the Philistine lords hadn't been so adamant in sending David away, David would have had to go in battle against his own people. And how tarnished that would have been of his record before the people of Israel. Could he have ever become the king of Israel if they had been finding out that David was with the Philistines killing his own people? I doubt it. But God protects his own. And that's one of the things that we find so, so very amazing, especially in David's life, because it happens over and over and over and over again. Now, all the time that David has been with the Philistines, there's no evidence that David actually sought the Lord's will. He may have, but there's no record in the scripture about that. We're going to find that David, after this incident, is going to always seek God's will until he becomes king. But here, in this situation, David's response to Achish's statement that he has to go back is indeed most interesting. David said, verse 8, to Achish, But what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? You hear what David is saying? He's saying, Achish, I'm on your side. You're my lord. Not Jehovah, you're my Lord, and I'm fighting for you. Why do you want to send me away? It is really amazing to me that David would even stretch this far in his statement that he's making with Achish. But he, I know that he wants Achish, Achish to believe that he definitely is his man. And he perhaps doesn't realize what's in store for him in the hours ahead. But some of the things that are going to take place as David now moves away from this protection of Achish 
And he's going to see God once again in his life and in control. But before we get there, it tells us in verse 9, Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. He's talking about Jehovah, Elohim, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So David is going to return to this place where he has been dwelling, the city of Ziklag. Chapter 30 is going to be a very, very difficult time for David and his men. But God is still using these events to train David to be a king, the king of Israel. And as he does so, he doesn't make life easy. As a matter of fact, it's one of the most miserable times in David's entire life that is about to come. But we'll discuss that with you all next time. Till then, grace and peace, and God bless you all.